0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: Hey, three quick items of business before we start. First, we have a survey. Would love your thoughts on what you like, what you don't like, and who you are. You can fill that out at sciencefriday.com slash feedback for us. Second, I want to disclose that my partner's aunt works for the American Chestnut Foundation. You'll hear about the foundation a little later. And finally, we're going to have a little announcement at the end of the show, so keep listening after the credits. Okay, here we go. On a summer day in 1904, a forester named Herman Merkel was strolling the grounds of the Bronx Zoo when he noticed something strange.
2: He noticed that the leaves on one of the trees were wilted. Reporter Shayla Farzan
1: with me to tell this story.
2: When Herman looked closer, he saw that around the base of some of the branches, there was this ring of dry bark, which soon became covered in tiny orange specks. Whatever it was, it was spreading through the zoo grounds and fast, and it always attacked just one type of tree, the American chestnut. By the following summer, the orange specks had reached so many trees that Herman decided to ask for help. He sent off some of the sick branches to the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington. And after examining the specimens, their fungus expert clearly saw cause for concern. She recommended the zoo get on it, stat, cut off the infected branches, and burn them. By the time they were done, the zoo had pruned more than 400 trees. They then sprayed the trees with hundreds of gallons of fungicide. Herman later wrote that some of the trees were so heavily infected that after cutting away all the diseased branches, there was nothing but a bare trunk
1: left. They'd have to wait until the next growing season to see if this actually worked. But all of this effort was like trying to put out an inferno with a squirt gun. The new fungus was just getting started looking out at all those yummy chestnuts at the zoo and beyond like a big wood buffet. Over the next few years, the fungus spread throughout the borough, beyond the city, in every direction. And in the span of a single generation, it would wipe out billions of trees, completely reshaping the forests of the Eastern U.S. So that today, most people don't even know what an American chestnut looks like. But now, some people are trying to bring it back, soon likely within the next couple of years. Except not everyone thinks that's a good idea. From Science Friday, this is Science Diction. I'm Johanna Mayer. And I'm Shayla Farzan. Today, we're
2: talking about the American chestnut. If you've ever seen an American chestnut, and you probably haven't, you should know that they were enormous. In eastern forests, they would tower over most of the other trees, growing over 100 feet tall and as much as 13 feet wide. And at the beginning of the last century, there were a lot of them. So many, people like to say a squirrel could go from New England all the way to Georgia, leaping chestnut to chestnut and never touching the ground. Every year, the trees produced baskets of rich sweet nuts, each one encased in a spiny jacket. By late fall, chestnuts would blanket the ground, up to a foot deep in some places. You could eat them right off the tree, or grind them up into flour, or even cook them into toasty little snacks. And people just adored these trees. I've heard people talk about it being, you know, the people's tree, our tree. Susan Frankel is the author of American Chestnut, The Life, Death, and Rebirth of a Perfect Tree. She says for a lot of people, especially in Appalachia, this tree held a treasured place in their lives. It really was like a member of the family. Um, And when the trees started to disappear, you know, people wept over them. People had pictures in the family scrapbooks of the trees that they would visit each
3: fall to harvest nuts from.
1: There are these old black and white photos of people posing next to American chestnut trees, wearing these jaunty little hats and suspenders. The people in these photos look teeny tiny next to these trees. These trees were well loved. And from an industry perspective, the American chestnut was a dream, too. The lumber was light compared to other hardwoods, made it a lot cheaper to ship, And it was rot-resistant, thanks to the high tannin content. And by the late 1800s, Americans were making just about everything out of chestnut. Railroad ties, telegraph poles, church pews, pianos. It
2: really furnished people's lives cradle to grave. People made cradles out of it. They made coffins out of it.
1: And suddenly, these trees were dying. In 1908, just four years after Herman first noticed those wilted trees at the Bronx Zoo, The New York Times ran an article announcing, quote, chestnut trees are doomed. The irony here is that these forest giants would be destroyed by something so tiny it looked almost like dust. Fungal spores carried on the wind, on the backs of insects and birds, sometimes even on the shoes and axes of loggers. The spores entered the tree, usually through a little crack in the bark, and they germinate creating a mat of tiny little filaments that eventually encircle the branch and cut off the flow of water and nutrients. Essentially, they choke the tree to death. Once inside, it is not a question of if the tree dies, but when. By 1912, all the chestnuts in New York City were dead. And over the next few years, the fungus spread to Pennsylvania and North Carolina and Georgia and Tennessee. By the 1950s, the blight had effectively finished off all the American chestnuts.
2: No one knows exactly when or how the fungus got to the US, but general consensus is that it hitched a ride with a different chestnut species from Japan.
3: So people were importing Japanese
2: chestnuts throughout the 1800s. Sarah Fitzsimmons is the director of restoration with the American Chestnut Foundation, a nonprofit that's trying to bring this species back.
3: And you can find advertisements of nurseries in New Jersey, Philly, uh, New York selling Japanese chestnuts. Well, people didn't realize that what they were bringing over with those trees was, was this deadly fungus to which American chestnuts had no resistance.
1: And the fungus was very much here. It was growing in nurseries and forests and people's backyards, and no amount of chopping or spraying was making it go away. So what to do? First, people tried walling off the fungus. New York and New Jersey's chestnuts were clearly goners. And in Pennsylvania, the whole eastern part of the state, east of the Susquehanna River, was a lost cause. But west of the river was looking pretty good. So they came up with a plan to cut down vast swaths of trees, create a kind of firebreak. Except by the time they finished game planning, the fungus had already jumped the river. Strike one.
2: Another option, don't stop the fungus, fix the tree. The American chestnut was basically helpless in the face of the blight, but the Chinese chestnut, it's resistant. So what if you combined the two? It's called backcrossing, creating a hybrid, then breeding that hybrid again and again with a target species. The idea is to make a tree that's just like an American chestnut, but still has some Chinese chestnut genes that make it resistant to the blight. The problem with that plan? Chestnut trees take years to reach maturity. And plant breeding is really slow when you're working on that kind of timeline. It just wasn't sustainable. Strike two.
1: Then there was... The nuclear option.
3: There was irradiation experiments. That was one of my favorite.
1: It started in the 50s, back when nuclear radiation was on everyone's mind. The idea was that if you irradiated enough chestnut seeds, you'll induce a bunch of mutations.
3: Much like, you know, a thousand monkeys at a thousand typewriters, um, you know, maybe we'll get a mutation that causes resistance in American chestnuts.
1: Alas, none of the monkeys hit the typewriters. Strike three. Eventually, a team at the State University of New York landed on a new strategy, genetic engineering. It gave them a lot more control than traditional plant breeding. Instead of slowly working toward a lucky genetic combination, they could choose specific genes from other species and put them directly into the chestnut genome, creating a transgenic species. And in time the SUNY scientists found just the fungus-fighting gene they needed in wheat. When they put that wheat gene in American chestnuts, the seedlings could ward off the fungus, as well as Chinese chestnuts. The team published that work almost a decade ago, back in 2013. But now, they're facing a new kind of hurdle.
3: The previous ones were primarily scientific and and the current one is more political and and social that we're now facing in in getting these out into the forest
1: the first hurdle bureaucracy there are three different federal agencies involved in this process the u.s department of agriculture is involved in approving genetically modified plants the environmental protection agency is studying the chestnut's possible environmental impact And the Food and Drug Administration is in charge of reviewing the food safety of transgenic nuts. There's been a long process of review and public comment. And these agencies probably won't release their decisions before 2023 at the earliest. So,
2: more than a century after that strange orange fungus was spotted in the Bronx, after billions of trees died along with most of the people who even remember them. The American chestnut might be coming back, except some people are wondering, is this even a good idea?
0: It's sort of like, what's the rush? Why the push? Let's make sure we're acting in in the tree's best interest.
2: Neil Patterson Jr. works at the Center for Native Peoples and the Environment at SUNY and is a member of the Tuscarora Nation. The Tuscarora are part of a group of six nations known as the Haudenosaunee Confederacy. Neil says the American chestnut once played an important role in their lives. The Haudenosaunee peoples extracted oil from the nuts or ground them up to make flour. The leaves were used for medicinal purposes, and the wood became the backbone of their longhouses. One of the arguments for restoring the American chestnut has been this idea that indigenous peoples could reintegrate it into their traditions. But Neil says he's morally opposed to planting transgenic chestnuts in the wild. He's worried they could affect the forest ecosystem in unexpected ways.
0: You know, we have adopted all kinds of technologies as, as indigenous people, as Haudenosaunee people. We are most fearful and and reticent about the technologies that are harmful to the things we love to people, our relatives, our families, and and to the earth, our relatives in the waters and in the woods. And so that's the ultimate question, right? Is Is this a harmful technology?
2: The people trying to restore the American chestnut say a lot of work is happening to safeguard against this. There's the long governmental review process and a lot of research to back it up. Researchers have studied how the transgenic trees would affect bees, the soil, even tadpoles in water, and they haven't found any adverse effects. And when they analyzed transgenic nuts and the original kind in the lab, they couldn't detect a difference. But Neil says even beyond the specific environmental concerns is a deeper and possibly harder to answer question, whether we should try to restore the chestnut tree just because we can. Neil says part of their worldview as Haudenosaunee people centers on this idea of accepting the earth for the way it is, not trying to impose their will on it.
0: And so Haudenosaunee people have a way to both honor and cherish original relationships with our relatives in all kinds of ways, and also have a a deep obligation to to love the earth uh, for the way it is, right? For for all of its problems, uh, for all of its uh, lack of justice, uh, for all of its um, scars, right?
2: If you talk to the people who want to restore the chestnut, they argue that this particular problem, the blight that destroyed the chestnuts in the first place, it's a problem caused by humans. They say we can't just expect nature to fix itself. People created this problem, and people need to clean it up.
0: And this is one of the areas that you know, I've tried to uh, put a grouping of yeah. chestnut trees. Oh, is this and one this right is, here? This is the most successful one here. And right now it's kind of my best one in the park. But, uh, so it's about, you know, 25, 28 feet tall.
1: Yeah. But Bart Chazar is pointing out a chestnut he planted in Prospect Park in Brooklyn. It's a tall, skinny thing. Big, bright green leaves. Kind of reminds me of a teenager that just hit a growth spurt.
0: You want to give this one a name? Okay.
1: It's a lot of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> Little
0: <itchy> or <laughs> Little litchy,
1: yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's,
0: it's doing really well. It's a potentially blight-resistant one. So hopefully, you know, stick around.
1: Little litchi is a hybrid, part Chinese chestnut, part American. Bart's hoping the transgenic chestnuts get approved soon. He's been eagerly waiting for this to happen ever since scientists cracked the code. But while he's waiting, he's taking matters into his own hands planting these in New York City parks since about 2004. It's a small-scale effort, where he actually overwinters seeds from the American Chestnut Foundation in the crisper drawer of his refrigerator. And once they're big enough, he plants them in little pots.
0: I basically keep them on in the vestibule in my building, which has, has a skylight. For a couple months until they, you know, six eight inches, then I put them in behind the building and I put a fence around them because again the squirrels would get to them.
1: Bart now has eight different spots in Prospect Park where he plants saplings. He estimates that he loses about half of them, and it's not always the blight that gets them. Sometimes a tree branch falls on one, or a squirrel gets to it. He remembers one in particular, a tree he named Gumby.
0: Ultimately, it wasn't the blight that got it. It was an intense rainstorm, and it just it blew over. And the park notified me that the tree had been knocked over. And by the time I got there the next day, the wood chipper was there, and you know, all that was left was a stump. Yeah, I've tried not to you know, get too emotionally tied into it, but it was sad to lose Gumpy?
2: It's an uphill battle for BART's hybrid chestnuts, and it's not clear if or when the government will approve the transgenic kind. But while all this is happening, in the background, another kind of chestnut is furiously trying to stake its claim in the forest. The original American chestnut. See the American chestnut isn't dead dead so much as it is mostly dead. In fact, millions of these trees are still out there in eastern forests. You can walk right past one without even noticing it, because they usually don't look all that impressive. You see, the fungus, it doesn't kill the roots of the trees, just the branches. That means the chestnuts can keep on sending up shoots, growing into teenager trees before eventually the fungus kills them
1: again. It's almost like they're stuck in chestnut puberty. So... The original American chestnuts are out there, trying their best, but eventually the blight will squeeze them out. It's inevitable. As for the transgenic trees, even if they do get approved, it's playing the ultra-long game. The American Chestnut Foundation estimates that to bring back these trees, we would have to plant 2.5 million seedlings every year for 200 years to get back 5% of the native range coverage. 5%. It's a project for our grandchildren's grandchildren. So in the meantime, we wait.
2: In October, Neil Patterson and about a dozen other indigenous people went to pick chestnuts in a small town in upstate New York. The trees were planted about 20 years ago by volunteers from the American Chestnut Foundation. They're not hybrids, not transgenic trees. They're the original. And even though they're struggling with the blight, some trees were just big enough to actually produce nuts. For most of those on the outing that October day, it was their first time picking chestnuts, feeling the spiny burrs prick their fingers. Neil says it felt like a reunion with a relative you haven't seen in a long time, almost like the trees had been waiting for them.
0: And and then it sort of hit me, at some point, to think about this as perhaps the last time Haudenosaunee people will um, gather, what we can say for, for, for fairly certain is our, our non-transgenic American chestnut.
2: Neil says over the years, some of the history of this tree has been lost. The blight arrived at a time when indigenous children were being sent to boarding schools, told not to speak their native languages. He says some nations don't even have a word in their language for chestnut anymore. Others, like the Tuscarora, are rediscovering it.
0: In my own language, chikas, um, uh, is how we say chestnut uh, in Tuscarora. So I've been making it a habit to, when I see a chestnut, call it its real name. Um, the name that it was uh, meant to hear, chikas.
2: Now, he says they're starting to think about what to call this new transgenic chestnut, trying to figure out where it fits in. This story was produced
1: by me, Shayla Farzan. And me, Johanna Mayer. Our editor and senior producer is... Me, Ella Fetter. Our composer is... Me, Daniel Petersman. We had research help from... me. Lauren Young, and fact-checking by me, Dania Abdelhamid. All right, and now for that announcement that we mentioned at the beginning. This is my last episode with Science Diction. This show has been an absolute joy to make, Thank you for listening, for writing emails, for leaving voicemails, for suggesting words for episodes. Thank you, especially to all the people who got in touch after our piece on Vocal Fry and told me that you like my voice. I read every single note and listened to every single voicemail. The show's going to take a little winter break, but there will be more science fiction in the new year. There will be more announcements soon. In the meantime, please fill out the survey at sciencefriday.com slash feedback for us, or consider making a donation at sciencefriday.com slash diction donate. Both of those things will help Science Diction come back sooner. And as always, our chief content officer is Nadia Ortelt. She recently lost her phone and isn't sure if she's ready to replace it.
2: It really was like a member of the family.
1: Stay warm roasted chestnut.